All right. In your Bible, Psalm 77 is where we'll be. If you have a coffee house Bible, I think it's page 503, 503. Psalm 77. We're in a series that I've called Wait on the Lord. Because we're in a season that's called Advent. Advent is a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And we are waiting for the Lord to come back. Last week, we, we talked about one reason that we need to wait. And it's because we live in a culture of distraction and hurry and busyness. For most of us, I think the main obstacle to a closeness with God is that our schedules are so full and so busy. It's hard to be with God and to find a closeness to Him when you're so like frantic and going from place to place to place. So last week, we looked at the Psalms. Do you remember this? God alone, my soul waits in silence. For God alone... My soul waits in silence, and I encourage the practice of solitude and silence, and I encourage you to maybe even mute down some of the things that are distractions like Netflix or social media just in the season before Christmas. But there's actually many ways that we get distance from God, and today I want to explore, explore another one. Some of, it's already been talked about. Jess did a great job. Kelsey did a great job kind of voicing some of the, Jermaine did a great job voicing this this feeling of distance from the Lord. Have you ever been in a season where you felt the Lord was distant? I have, very much. I was talking with a mentor recently, and he said a lot of things. He was looking back on his years in ministry, and some, you know, those mountains, and some were those valleys. But as he was talking, he said this line that really stuck out to me. It stuck out so much that weeks later, I still remember it without taking any notes. He said, I have journals full of the silence of God. Do, do you hear that? This is not a man who is filled up on Netflix and is experiencing distance or silence from God. This is a man in pursuit of the Lord. I have journals full of the silence of God. Now, that's not the season he's in now. And so he was offering encouragement to people who are in that season now, but it's the season that he had been in. And here's the reality. Most of us will be in a season just like that at some point in our lives. And the reality is that somewhere between 10 and 20% of you are probably in that season right now. I don't want to ask you to, to raise your hands, but if you're in a season where God feels distant, and it's not because you're filled with distraction, but it seems like in spite of your pursuit of him, you're still experiencing his absence. I want to talk to you today. And not just you, but also the rest of us who aren't in that season today, but, you know, next year we might be. Or our mom or dad is, or our roommate is, or our brother and sister is, or we have a dear friend who is. How do we walk with people who are in darkness? How do we walk with people in darkness? We're going to do three things today. First, we're going to be naming the darkness naming the darkness, two, waiting in the darkness, and then three, seeing in the darkness. Okay, that's, that's the order of what we're, what we're doing today. The first, first piece here is to name the darkness, to name the darkness. There are actually a lot of names for the season that I'm trying to capture today. It's not the season of suffering. It's not the season of grief, although very often those overlap with the season that I'm describing. It's the season where God feels distant and shut out, like he's, he's not even there. He's not even with you. There's a lot of names for it. John Bunyan, he called it the sloth of despond. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's, he wrote a book 
It's called spiritual depression. That's his, his language for it. He says, especially after a great blessing, this is some reaction of some unusual and exceptional experience. He says, and then you just basically fall off a cliff. C.S. Lewis and Narnia books, do you remember this? He calls it always winter but never Christmas. Okay, it was just me who knew that, apparently. Thank you, Scott. Always winter, never Christmas. In other words, always Advent, but never Christmas. Waiting, 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 waiting. Where is he? In another one of his books, C.S. Lewis is reflecting, this is actually prompted by grief, he found the love of his life very late as, as an older man, and they married, and then three years later, she died. And he says, meanwhile, where is God? If you remember yourself and you turn to him in gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. He says, in good times, it feels like he, he's just there to welcome you with open arms, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. What do you find? C.S. Lewis, a door slammed in your face in a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might even be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. So what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so a very absent a help in our time of trouble? You ever been in that season? A.W. Tozer called it the ministry of the night or the night of the soul. Thomas Goodwin called it the, the child of God walking in darkness. There's a lot of names for it because it's such a common experience. But I want to I focus in on two people. One is a woman named Teresa. Teresa of... Ruby, are you in here? She may be downstairs. Teresa of Avila. She's from Spain. And so there's a lot of Spanish mixed in here that I would love some help from a native speaker. But Teresa, she's sometimes called St. Teresa. And she's born about 50 miles west of Madrid in Spain. And she's born into a family that faces religious persecution and her family is forced into Christianity. It's the, it's the era of the Spanish Inquisition and Ferdinand. Her family is forced to become Christian, and she becomes a true believer. By age seven, she wants to become a martyr. She and her brother run away from home to try to get out of town to go to the land of the Muslims so that they'll cut off their heads. <laughs> this, la this lady's serious. So she says, the greatest barrier or the greatest obstacle we faced was our parents. <laughs> her, her dad actually went on to be an obstacle in many other ways. She wanted to give her life to the church and to the faith, but he did not want that life for her. But despite her dad's protests, she, she did. She committed herself to ministry, and she became a nun in a church in Spain. And she had these spiritual highs. She was a woman of wisdom and faith and prayer. But Teresa also went through seasons of intense darkness and distance. Hers was characterized by very intense self-doubt. Because for her, when she prayed, it felt like God was nowhere near, like God couldn't hear her, like her prayers were totally ineffective. She was plagued by this self-doubt until a mentor came. And she says this about her mentor. Nearly from the beginning, I could see that from his own experience, he understood me. And that was all I needed. This mentor came in and said, I've been there in this season of darkness. And so through this season of darkness... She actually became even more deepened in the faith. 
And she became the spiritual director of, uh, of another man I want to tell you about, a young man that came into her life whose name was John, John de la Cruz. Saint John of the Cross is what he's known as today. John also gave himself into ministry and he faced religious persecution. It was, it was an era of such transition for the Catholic Church at the time and for, for the body of faith. And they were persecuted because of the reforms that they were trying to make. And ultimately, John was thrown into prison at a church. Uh, I heard somebody say, if your, prison ha- if your church has a prison, you may want to rethink some things. <laughs> right? So St. John, is, he's in a windowless prison, experiencing total darkness, except for the times once a day where they would take him out and whip him and then bring him back into his prison cell. But during this season, he wrote a poem where he named the season, and it's a name that many people go back to still today. He called it the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. But there's a lot of strange things about this poem. And then he and Teresa went on to write books and books about this poem, just reflecting on the experience of darkness and distance in the middle of searching for God. One of the most interesting things is that it basically sounds like the Song of Solomon. If you know the Song of Solomon, it's a love poem from one lover to another lover. It's, it sounds very romantic, which is not how most people would describe the dark night of the soul as a romantic experience with their lover. But that is how, in retrospect, John saw what was happening. Let me, let me unpack some of what he means. The poem seems to have been inspired by love poetry, and it presents the Christian as a lover passionately seeking union with Christ. And John comes to realize in this season of distance, in literal darkness and very much emotional darkness, he, be- he begins to experience the Lord's closeness and intimacy in ways deeper than he had ever experienced before. He says, oh, night that guided me. O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved. You see, for John, the night is the place where you find the one who really loves you. Even as you experience what feels like the absence of the one who really loves you. He and Teresa were on the same page with the dark night of the soul. There's a lot of reflection that's gone on in the 505 years since their, their lives. Gerald May wrote one book on, on this topic. And he says this, the dark night of the soul is not restricted to holy people. It can happen to anyone. He says, I believe that in some ways it happens to everyone, yet it is much more significant than simple misfortune. It is a deep transformation, a movement toward indescribable freedom and joy But guys, it does not feel like that, does it? He says, it's an ongoing spiritual process in which we are liberated from attachments and compulsions and empowered to live and love more freely. For Teresa and John, he says, the dark night, indeed all of life, is nothing other than the story of a love affair, a romance between God and the human soul that liberates us to love one another. There's something that happens in the dark night. And I don't mean the Batman movie. So, right, there's something that happens in, in the, the distance, in the dryness, in the desert, in the darkness. And the thing that is happening is that it's revealing, exposing, and then purging, to use their language, the things that are fighting for top place with God. How can you tell you're in a dark night? John Mark Comer, he says, you've got to pay attention to your desires. 
If your desire for the world goes up and your desire for God goes down, he says, that's not the dark night. That's when I want more Netflix, I want more Instagram, and I don't want God. I just want more stuff, right? My desire for the world, I I desire more stuff at work. I desire more responsibility, but I don't desire God. He says, that's not the dark night. That's what we talked about last week. That's that issue of distraction. That's the issue of busyness, of looking to other things for your identity. That's not the dark night. He says, but if your desire for the world goes down and your desire for God goes up, he says, that's probably the dark night. If you don't actually want those things anymore and all you want is God and it feels like he's not there, he says, that's the dark night. You're ache to be with God, but in all your efforts to be with him, he still seems as distant or absent as ever. So it's a season where God takes away the felt experience of his presence He takes away the felt experience of his presence in order for us to grow deeper into intimacy with him. Does that make sense? The lover united in the night, to use the language of St. John. All right, so we've named the darkness. We can call it the dark night of the soul. We can call it distance. You can call it dryness. You You can call it abandonment or at least perceived or felt abandonment or distance. But now we need to figure out what it looks like to wait in the darkness. So many of our spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith have been through dark nights of the soul. And not just our spiritual fathers and mothers in Christian history, but if you look in Scripture itself, Scripture itself is filled with people who are in dark nights and forced to wait in what seems like God's absence. Just think of Abraham and Sarah or Joseph and Moses. Think of David and Hannah So many people are experiencing darkness of the soul. The Psalms are filled with this. Psalm 42, he says, I'm like a a deer that's panting through the wilderness. I'm just craving water. That's how I, I, I want you, God, but you're nowhere here. Your waves, they crash over me, but I can't drink anything but my tears. Or Psalm 130, he's he's telling himself, I have to wait. I have to wait on you. What am I waiting for? Where are you even at? But one of my favorites. Favorite of the Psalms that explores this tension is Psalm 77. That's where we're going to spend just the next few minutes walking through this this text for what it looks like to wait in the darkness. The the header for this Psalm says, for the director of music, for Jejuthun of Asaph, a Psalm. So Asaph wrote this, and Asaph is one of the worship leaders in the early temple period. He's, He's high up, and he has 12 Psalms in our book of Psalms that are all by him. And most of them are reflections on what it looks like to come into corporate worship. You see, for him, this is kind of his life. He's a, he's a worship leader. Uh, he writes music. He leads musicians. He leads singers. But sometimes, whenever he comes into worship, God doesn't seem to be there that day. You ever felt that? <laughs> sure. So Asaph is a pretty good source for us to listen to in this psalm. This is a personal reflection that is meant for the whole people to be sung together. It starts out in verse 1. He says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When we hear the language of crying, I think we should hear like audible moans and groans, but I think we should also see and picture tears and weeping. He's, He's looking for God. But when I was in distress, I sought the Lord. You see, when this is all happening, he says, at night, I stretched out my hands. This is a posture of prayer in Israel. He says, I stretched out my hands. You can picture someone from the the Middle East or the Far East down on their knees with their their backs bent and their hands up, stretching out to God. 
untiring hands. And he says, but I would not be comforted. Do you, you see this prayer in the night that he's, he's offering? He's crying to God, but God doesn't answer him. Verse 3, I remembered you, God. I groaned. I meditated. And my spirit grew faint. There's a lot of first-person verbs that show up in this psalm. Do you see them here highlighted? I remembered. I groaned. I meditated. I did this. I did this. I tried this. I tried this. And what does the Lord do? Nothing. And so I became weary and faint and tired. So selah means, remember, it's the, it's the pause, it's the break in the stanzas. It's, it's think about it. Let's go to verse 4. He says, you kept my eyes from closing. I, my body is faint, verse 3, verse 4, but you kept my eyes from closing. It's, I'm so tired of this, but I'm not tired enough to actually be able to sleep. I'm up in the night. My eyes can't even close because I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago, and I remembered my songs in the night. Do you remember? I thought I did. I was doing this. I was doing this. And I, I remembered my songs in the night. This is, this is a worship leader who's praying in the night. And now he's remembering his songs in the night. He would go in to worship. He would go into work at the temple. And he would have the big worship band with, with strings and trumpets at the temple. And they would sing and they would praise and people would come in, they would make offerings and, and there's the, the praise of God is going up on this day after day after day. And then he comes home and at night he's humming that song to himself. Do you do this sometimes? I do this all the time where I'm just like humming worship music. And, he's like, and then I started thinking about it. This song that's in my head doesn't actually match my experience now at all. The thing we're singing during the day, the thing I'm singing at night, isn't what I'm living my, my life. I can't even sleep. And so he remembers his song in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked. Meditate is where you mutter over something, like a, ch a cow chews its cud. It's just bringing it back up, chomping it again, mutter, mutter, chew on, bring it to mind. He said, I, I, I couldn't get this out of my head. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? You hear the always and never language, forever and never. Where are you, God? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? You can't really see it in the NIV translation, but all of these, these words come from the scene in Exodus 34, where Moses, it says that he passes by the glory. He's put in the cleft of the rock, and the glory of the Lord passes. And it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He keeps his promises. He, he never forgets people. He's, he's long-suffering. He's not quick to anger. And he's saying, is this really who you are? Because I remember the song that said all of those things. But this is not how I'm experiencing you. So then I thought to myself, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. This is a, an Exodus metaphor. When God stretched out his right hand in power. I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to remember this one thing. That God may not feel very present right now. But I know what he did for my ancestors. 
I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. He shifted his meditation from his own experience of God's absence. And his meditation has now shifted into a memory of God's miracle working power in his presence. This memory, this remembering, in Hebrew it's where you think the past into the present. You think the past into the present. It's a call to not just remember as if it happened one day, but as if that still has bearing on today, where you think the past into the present. And so he's rehearsing the, the things that God has done before. He says, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? When he steps out of himself and he puts himself like over this big perspective and he sees that God is actually God and I am not. God is God and I am not. The, the dark night that this psalmist Asaph is, is experiencing, it reveals that sometimes he serves God for something. Do you hear the, the question of Job in there? Does, does Job serve God for nothing? And it's put to the test and it's all exposed and it's like, are we in it for the benefits or are we in it for God? And Asaph, when that question is put to him, he says, so I'm going to pray and I'm going to remember and I'm going to continue. And it, when we do this, it transforms us into people of endurance and strength. Let me tell a story from Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a, a hobbit named Sam who's hiking with Frodo for a very long time. And it's at the end of their journey, this is I think in the return of the king in the book, Sam says, he's thinking, he says, the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best, their provision would take him to their end goal. And when the task was done, there they would come to an end, alone, homeless, foodless, in the midst of a terrible desert. There could be no return. There's just not enough food to get back home. We're going to do this and then we're going to die. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam, to help Frodo to the last step and then die with him. Well, if that's the job, then I must do it. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned into a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. With a new sense of responsibility, he brought his eyes back to the ground near at hand, studying the next move. He looks out into the future and he realizes it's just a lonely, homeless, foodless desert where I'm going to die. Let's get after it. Do you see there's a transformation that happens in this little microcosm of the dark night of the soul that we, we read here, that something happens here to strengthen that could not have been strengthened otherwise because of what is illuminated and exposed. There's another, another person I want to tell you about, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, not king. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard a comedian talk about this. He's like, can you imagine being Martin Luther when he dies? He's like, you know, I'm going to be the king of Martin Luther's. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the greatest Martin Luther ever. And then 500 years later, he's, you have to clarify that you're talking about that Martin Luther. Um, so Martin Luther, the, the German reformer, he's actually imprisoned in 1527 for his reforms. 
This is a theme with the dark night. And he says that in this dark night, when he's in prison, he says, what you have to do is let God be God. Let God be God, accepting the scandal of his hiddenness and trusting him in spite of reason, experience, and common sense. And so as he's stuck in prison in his own dark night, he's realizing that I have to let God be God. That is when Martin Luther writes to him, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. It's in the, in the dark night that something solidifies and is strengthened. And as he's surrounded, literally in a prison fortress, he realizes that God is the true fortress. This is what worship seems to do here. That the memory of, of God's mighty deeds in worship is brought into the present. I was thinking of some of the, the songs and lyrics that we've heard where he says, my weapon is a melody. That is who you are. Do it again. You're the God of miracles. It's remembering what God, this is actually, I know this is true of who you are. So let me get outside of myself and get into who you are and what you've done for us in the past. All right. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. Look at all this. It's like all creation has seen this Exodus scene where God rescues his people with that great right hand of the Most High. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. You see the storm of God's power and presence. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Look at this last line, though. Though your footprints were not seen. He remembers that God is actually working and his impact is seen even as he's invisible. And worship is what makes visible the invisible. Worship is what makes visible the invisible. It's, it's where he brings to memory and draws from the past into the present in this, in this season of the dark night. You're led, your people, like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We talked about naming the darkness. I call it the dark night of the soul. We talked about waiting in darkness and how Scripture has a lot of tools and places to go. Psalm 77 is one of the best. But I want to help you see in the darkness. And this isn't something that's like my wisdom. This is the wisdom of Scripture. This is the wisdom of our spiritual fathers and mothers that they have shared when they have gone through darkness. It's the wisdom of mentors and people who've been there, who get it. Let's listen to some of the lessons that, that they teach us. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Paul tells the Corinthian Christians. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so this experience of the darkness and the distance of God, I think, is pretty common in human history. It's pretty common in Scripture. But in the dark night, things are not as they seem. There's these paradoxes that, that come to the surface where our feelings and our experiences are exposed and then they're refined. That's the whole point. Teresa, she said this, we seek the consolations of God rather than the God of consolation. You hear that? We, we seek the comforts of God rather than the God of comfort. And, he says, and she says, in the dark night, he, he flips that and puts it right back. John Mark Comer, he, he says this, we walk by faith and not by feelings. So we have to be reminded that our material prosperity is not proof of divine favor. 
that in the dark night, our ideas of God are replaced with God himself. That we come to seasons of darkness where it feels like God is distant and it tests our faith. But the dark night, the whole purpose seems to be that for people experiencing this season, he wants to draw you closer to himself, not to the feeling of closeness to himself, not to the experience of closeness to himself, not to any of these mediating things that kind of go between. He wants you to have him fully. To lose these feelings is not to lose God, but perhaps to begin to truly find him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mentioned his book, Spiritual Depression, earlier. He says, I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. He says, do you realize what this means? I suggest the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. But in worship, we remember and bring it back in right order. Here's two reminders for those in darkness. First, God is more present than your perception. God is more present than your perception. There's this paradox of absence and presence that shows up. It feels like God is absent. It feels like God has abandoned, but God is using this sense to actually draw you deeper into his presence. In our immature faith, we equate feelings of God with God himself, and he wants to strip that away and grow you into something more substantial. Lloyd-Jones, he says, there are many people who seem to be in trouble because they're more or less living on other people's experiences or coveting other people's experiences. He says, when you just are craving experiences, you lose sight that God is the one that we're actually after. And we sing some songs that reinforce this. One of my favorite songs is Maverick City, Rest on Us. They say this, Spirit, when you move, you make my heart pound. When you fill the room, you're here and I know you're moving. I'm here and I know you'll fill me. But sometimes it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> so what about this song instead? This is from Cody Carnes. I won't be formed by feelings. I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. You see that there's something exp- that he's more present in our perception. He's exposing some of those things. And he wants you to rely on him, not the felt experience of him. He wants you to walk by faith and not by sight. He wants you to walk by faith and not by feelings. The truth is the promises of God will not fail. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will not abandon you. And so I, the, part of this call is to worship God rather than worship. Does that make sense? Worship God rather than worship. So see what the Lord is doing. In the dark night of the soul, we find that true spirituality isn't in our sentiments, but it's in the exercise of love. All right, second thing, God is more present than your perception. The second thing is the dark night is a season, not a life sentence. If you're in the dark night, you need to hear this, that the dark night is a season, not a life sentence. You may think that you're here because of something and you deserve the life sentence. Or you may think that I don't deserve that. God, where are you? He is, he is there. He's more present than your perception. But this is also a season, not a sentence. It's a season where he wants to come closer and be able to draw you in more deeply. There are unhealthy, untrue parts of our faith that are being stripped away to strengthen its substance, where faith is refined, where ideas of God are replaced for God himself, but it's not forever, it's not permanent. You will see the light. You will wake up the day. Okay, another piece of seeing in the dark is prayer in the night. Prayer in the night is a, a, actually a book title, Christianity Today Book of the Year winner last year by Tish Warren, prayer in the night. I do recommend it to you if you're in a dark night. Tisha opens the book 
She says, in the middle of the night, covered in blood in an emergency room, I was praying. And she tells the story of a, a pregnancy that had gone terribly wrong for her. And they're putting in lines for blood transfusion, and they told me to lie still, she says. And I yelled to her husband, complain, I want to pray, complain. She says, it isn't normal even for me to loudly demand liturgical prayers in a crowded room in the midst of a crisis. But in that moment, I needed as much as I needed the IV. And so her husband, he pulls up the Book of Common Prayer on his phone, and he warned the no nurses, we're, we're about to pray. And then they went through the entire prayer of nighttime service. They repeated it together. Keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wings. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Defend us, Lord, from the perils of danger of this night. The almighty, merciful Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. And then as they go through the whole thing, one of the nurses says, that's beautiful. I've never heard that before. But for her, she had heard that before. Hundreds of times. Dozens, you know, of reciting this in the normal night was equipping her. The language of prayer in the night was given to her. Sometimes when we don't have language, we need to draw on the language of others. Prayer in the night, it brings in the value of what we talk about here is liturgy. Of prayers that are written for us, that are not written by us. Prayers that give us language for our experience, even, even when we don't know what we're about to experience. Let me tell one quick story. It's a story of of Barrett Davidson. Liza, she led doxology today. Barrett is her five-year-old little brother. And he was leading the Thanksgiving prayer a couple of weeks ago at his home. As they shared the story in our Oikos group, so I, I've been excited to share it with you. And as he's doing, you know, the Thanksgiving prayer, five-year-old boy, he starts praying, um, like, we, we confess and we humbly repent that we have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And it, when the parents tell it, they say, like, everybody in the prayer is like, what is happening? <laughs> and he starts just reciting this prayer of confession, and they're like, it's true. I have not loved my neighbor as myself, but what is happening here? Do you see there's a power in repeated prayers that forms us for a later time, and it strengthens us sometimes beyond our capacity on our own. If that's true of a five-year-old, it's also true of us. If, if it's true in the daytime at Thanksgiving time, it's also true in the darkness of the night. There's a lot of resources to give us language to pray. The Psalms are where I start my days every day. The Psalms are filled with language to help us pray in the night. There's books um, like Every Moment Holy. It's a book just of liturgies and prayers, just for every, every kind of moment. You can, you can find resources. Um, David, I'm, I'm blanking. Is it just common prayer? Is that the one you go through in the mornings? Uh, common prayer for Radicals and... Or everyday radical book of common prayer for everyday radical thank you there, there's a lot of resources for this and, it, and if you're in a dark night sometimes you don't have language to pray you can pray other people's language this is this is tish's point she says for most of church history christians understood prayer not primarily as a means of self-expression as an individual conversation with the divine but the church has understood that prayer is an inherited way of approaching god a way to wade into the ongoing stream of the church's communion with him and so in that moment in the hospital, I was not trying to express my faith, to announce my wavering devotion to a room full of busy nurses, nor was I trying to call down my sky fairy, in the words of Richard Dawkins, to come save me. Through prayer, I dared to believe that God was in the midst of my chaos and pain, whatever was to come. I was reaching for a reality that was larger and more enduring than what I felt in that moment. 
And so as countless nights before the church, in the midst of my weakness, the church responded in her ancient voice, here are some words, pray them. They're strong enough to hold you. These will help your unbelief. Faith, I've come to believe, is more craft than feeling. And prayer is our chief practice in the craft. Prayer in the night will see you through into the day. When Lewis is, I've quoted him now from Narnia, from his reflections on grief, and now from Screwtape. Okay. Screwtape is a book where a demon is writing to a head demon and getting advice on how to tempt people. But he offers this warning. He says, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best, him being the Lord. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger. The demon cause, the cause of Satan is never more in danger when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round with a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Last piece of seen in the dark is to rest in the night. You will not work your way through the dark night of the soul. I think more so you will rest your way through. St. John, he talks about uh, like a baby who's weaned from milk. He says that's what the dark night of the soul is. A baby who's weaned from milk. And it cries a lot more, but it needs some substance. I, I want to flip the metaphor a little bit. Um, have you ever heard of sleep training? You know, parents I know have. But I, I think this metaphor is actually pretty good. You see, when a baby needs to learn how to sleep through the night, it's going to take some really difficult nights. It takes nights where you let them cry it out. And they are experiencing a, a mother and a father's absence. But parents, you know this. You're not absent. You're at the door crying. You're on the monitor just watching. Because you want to go in there. And the reason you're not going in there because that child actually needs more rest than they're able to have today. And so through this dark night, they learn to rest more deeply. And not just them, but actually the home together becomes more restful. So resting, this is what's happening, but it's also, I think, one of the, the chief ways through it. To not overwork yourself and try to, to machine your way through the dark night of the soul, but instead to realize and to just remember that God is there. He is with you. And he has a plan even for this experience of darkness. It will not last forever. He has something good for you. And the good thing that he has for you is him. You may be thinking, especially if you're in a dark night, but how can I know that's true? That, that's the question. That's the question of the psalmist. I remember my song in the night, and then I say, is that really you? Where are you? Let me give one answer to that. In, in Psalm 77, at, at, the ten, at the hinge point, verse 10, where the experience of distance and then the experience of worship where they intersect. He says, I remember and I appeal to this. I will appeal to the right hand of the Most High. And he remembers the story of the Exodus when the right hand of God came in in power and presence. And he says, that's enough for me. That's all I need. But brother and sister, do you, do you know who is at the right hand of the Most High? 
when Stephen was suffering, he looked up. And standing at the right hand of the Most High was Jesus of Nazareth. Standing at the right hand of God. You may wonder, but does he really understand the darkness? Don't you remember when he would wake up in the night while it was still dark and he would pray in the night? Don't you remember the the night he was betrayed? How he, it says, he's quoting the Psalms. He's, He's drawing on the prayers of people that have words that he doesn't have. And he says, my soul is troubled even to death. And he's weeping. He's crying in the night. He's he's praying in the night, using the language of other people. And there's just darkness all around. He's totally alone. And it feels like God is absent. Don't you remember what happened? Though it was high noon when he was crucified, utter darkness descended on all the earth. And as he's there crucified, in this darkness, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think he understands the darkness? Do you think he understands prayer in the night? But, but he doesn't stay there because the one who descended into the darkness is the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father. The crowds cried out, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires. Do you remember all of the darkness of, this, of the night? Oh, how our Lord knows the dark night of the soul. And in the darkness of, of night, the light has come into the world. And it still is. Keller says it like this. Jesus Christ experienced darkness as his only friend. So in your darkness, you could know that Jesus is still your friend. Let me end there, and I'll just ask you to pray. Um, I'm mindful that some of you are feeling darkness, and you're in the dark night of the soul. When you stand, all of us are standing with you. And it's not because all of us are in the same dark night. But here's what I want you to know. Would you go ahead and stand? If you're standing right now in a dark night of the soul, Just kind of look around and realize that even though we may not know it, we are standing with you. But more importantly than us standing with you, I want you to look to heaven as we pray and know that Jesus Christ is standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you always and completely because he is able to save to the uttermost. He is there in your darkness because he's been in the darkness, but he's he's there on the other side of the door weeping with you, knowing that through this season there's something beautiful and good And it's him. He wants to be with you. Let me pray this prayer from Isaiah 40. Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, but young men stumble and fall. But those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you see us through the shadow of death and into your light for your glory and kingdom. Amen.